Yesterday we had an opportunity to remember Katie Wynium. We went to a, a memorial service for Katie. Uh, I was reminded again and again it was not a funeral service. It was a celebration of Katie's life. So we had an opportunity yesterday to remember Katie and the things that she meant to us and the things that she, how she impacted our lives. And it was a great time. It was a great time just getting together with those people, seeing pictures of Katie. And we remembered, we remembered Katie and how she impacted each one of us. Ah, that's great. Memory is a wonderful thing. And I'd like to take us today down the, down the lane of, of memory lane. Down that special place where maybe we need to dust off our memory a little bit to, to remember to remember. And that's the key word that we want to think about today is to remember. Now hopefully I know how it is with all of us. We're very busy people. We have work. We have family. We have chores around the house. We have things that we need to get done at all times. We're just busy. And sometimes our busyness causes us to forget those things that are extremely important in our life. Because other small items, the urgent takes the place of the important. Now you've been there and I've been there too. We know what it's like. Hopefully we've never been as far as this man that I'm about to tell you in this story right here in forgetting. There was an absent-minded professor who was so absorbed in his work that he would forget the very simplest of details. One morning his wife said to him, Now remember, honey, we are moving today. When you come back from the lab, we will not be at this house anymore. We are moving today, and for that, I'm going to put a slip of paper in your pocket to remind you that we are moving. Well, the day passed. The man came home, guess what, to his old house. He entered the front door, opened it up, and it was absolutely empty. There was no one there. So distraught, the man went to the curb and sat down on the curb with his hands on his, uh, his, on his forehead, his hands on his knees and his head on his forehead. And he's so distraught until a little boy walked up to him. And he said, young man, do you know the people that used to live in this home? Do you know where they went? And the little boy replied, sure, dad. Mom told me you'd forget. Come on, let's go home. That's forgetting a lot. I hope your life is not so hectic that you are forgetting the important things in life to remember. We are in the Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 2 and finish out the church at Ephesus this morning. And we looked last week just briefly at the section of verses 1 through 3, and that was a praise section. He was telling them the things that they were doing right, the things that were good, the things that were commendable. And I'm just going to just quickly read over verses 1 through 3, just as a quick review. Jesus is speaking to John, and he says, To the angel, to the pastor, to the human being, to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who holds those pastors of his churches in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, he walks in the midst of his churches, Jesus says, I know, I have seen, because I've walked in the middle of your church in Ephesus, I have seen, I know your works. I know how you're about service, how you love to serve people, your servants at heart. I know your works, what you're doing. And I know your toil. I know your physical exhaustion at times, your mental exhaustion, because you are so committed to doing my work 
and in my name, that you're absolutely committed. I know your toil. I know your works. I know your patient endurance, that you're full of faith. Now, whatever they were enduring, whether it was the false apostles or whether it was the persecution, whatever it was that they were enduring, they were enduring it with faith. They were full of faith, this whole thing. And he says, and I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. False. I know that you guarded the true teaching. That was passed on by the Apostle Paul. And that was taught by Timothy. And even John himself who taught at Ephesus. I know that you, you tested those people who claimed to be apostles and they were not. You guarded the true teaching. And I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. This was a faithful church. They were faithful. They were working hard. They were toiling to the point of a mental and physical exhaustion. They were patiently enduring with full faith. They were guarding the true teaching. And they were faithful in the past and they were being faithful at that moment in time. And then we come up to verse number 4. Verse number 4. And before we read verse number 4, what's interesting is verses 1 through 7 are all written. You notice the you and the your. They're all written in a second person singular. So in other words, it's like that, that Jesus himself is talking to the pastor. And the pastor then is representing the entire church. So he's talking individually to the pastor, but in essence he's addressing the, pa the church through the pastor. And it really is true. Churches are flavored by their pastors. As the pastor goes, so goes the church. So he's addressing the church through the pastor in a, a second person singular, you and your. You read that throughout the whole thing. Now we come to verse number 4. Verse number 4. It starts off, but. Now, in the King James Version, they use the word, nevertheless. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That nevertheless is a bit shocking. As you're reading along, you're saying, oh man, this must be a church that's, that they got it right. Look at them. Going, going, going. And all of a sudden, verse number 4. Nevertheless. Whoa, kind of stop for a second. Nevertheless, but I have this against you. Well, the idea of having something against someone is the idea is that you have offended them. That's the idea that you see out of this. And, and that's in Matthew chapter 5. The same word is used here. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you. That's the idea there. Is that remember, if you've offended your brother, leave the gift at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer the gift. That's what Jesus said. That's the idea. So Jesus said, I have something against you. The Ephesian church and had offended, had offended the exalted Christ by abandoning the love that they had for him. Now, some think that they lost their love. They didn't lose their love. They knew exactly where the love was. It wasn't the idea of losing the love. They left their love. They abandoned that love that they had at the first. Do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember when you first placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Some weep. Others don't. Some jump up and down. Others don't. But do you remember the time that you first place your faith in Jesus Christ. Remember that time when you were so excited to learn anything and everything about Jesus, you would just open up the Bible and say, what can I learn now about Jesus? And you'd read something and go, oh, thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you for doing that for me. You remember that when you would stay up late and you would sacrifice your time. You would give all of your energy just to see that a ministry project was completed. And you didn't care because you loved Jesus. You just wanted to do it. You were so excited about being a believer and what Jesus did for you. You were just there. You didn't care if anyone ever saw what you did, if it was behind the scenes. You didn't care one bit because you loved Jesus. They had abandoned that kind of love. They left it. What they had at the very beginning, when they first came to faith in Jesus Christ, they had this intense love that flavored everything that they were. But they left it. Now Paul had founded the church right around 50 to 53 AD, right around that time. And this letter was written right around 96 to 98, so we're looking about 40 years had gone by. So if you think about it, you've got first generation Christians that come to faith, they come out of paganism. They come out of this, this hopelessness, and they meet the God, the God of creation, and they fall so deeply in love with Him. That's the first generation Christian. And then you've got their children that are born in their households. Now hopefully many of those came to faith. Those are the second generation Christians. And then perhaps over a 40 year period, perhaps they even had grandchildren that were born. And some of those grandchildren may have even come to faith in Jesus Christ. So you've got this idea of first-generation Christians, second-generation Christians, and in this case, my children are second-generation Christians because I'm a first-generation Christian. And then you have perhaps third-generation Christians. So something happened from the time of moving out of paganism and having this intense love to a, perhaps a third-generation Christian who no longer loved Jesus. Do you know the greatest thing we can pass on to our children, to the next generation? It's not doctrine. Well, that's important. It's not being dutiful to church service. That's important, meeting together as believers. Do you know the one most important thing that we can pass on to the next generation is love for Jesus Christ. If they'll love Jesus Christ, everything else will fit into place. We parents love to nag our children. Parents, the more they love Jesus the less nagging we have to do. The one thing that we can pass on to our children and the next generation in Medical Aid Community Church is a love for Jesus. That will flavor everything in their entire life. This church in Ephesus, they were still active in service and they maintained sound doctrine. They were commendable. Active in service and maintaining sound doctrine, but the true motive of all worship and service was gone. It was no longer love. It was duty. I have to be at church because so-and-so will notice if I'm missing. I have to come to church because my parents make me. I have to come to church because my wife makes me. It wasn't love anymore. It was simply duty. All true motivation for love, for service, and worship was gone. A little old man and a little old lady were driving along in their car. Man's driving. Pull up to a stoplight. In front of them is a car that has two people, but you can't tell really it's two people. The two people were sitting so close together, and they noticed they were young people, and they thought, oh, newlyweds. They were sitting so close together. Not only that, she was leaning over, nibbling on the man's ear. It looked like they were just one hand right there. So the little old lady says to the little old man, she said, 
Do you remember when I used to sit that close to you? And the little old man said, yeah. Do you remember when I used to nibble on your ear? And the little old man got a smile on his face. Yeah, I remember that. Do you remember when I sat so close that people behind us thought there was just one head in the car? The little old man said, yeah. And the little woman said, well, what happened? Why aren't we so close anymore? And the little old man said, I never moved. Somehow, either through generations, or somehow maybe even the first generation Christians, had moved away from their love towards Jesus. And they had abandoned it. They had left it. They were no longer loving Jesus. It was no longer the very motivation for everything that they did was love for Jesus. Look at verse number 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So verse number 5 gives us the very solution to the problem that they had. They had abandoned their first love. But Jesus then gives this church a solution to the problem. And it's a threefold solution. The very first thing he said to them is, I want you to remember. And that was the key word I gave you this morning. I want you to remember. They were told to remember that moral and spiritual state that they once enjoyed, that they had departed from. He said, I want you to remember, to remember from where you have fallen. Now, they weren't in the act of falling. It's not written in that form. It's written in the form that they had already fallen. And you can kind of get a word picture like this. Imagine if we're walking along on a large mountain with a cliff on the side, and we're walking along this trail up on top, and we're going along, beep and bop, and maybe listen to our iPods, and then all of a sudden we take a misstep, and we fall off the cliff, and we fall down several feet down to the bottom, and we're laying at the bottom, and we're looking up at the pathway that we were once walking on. That's the picture. The picture is that they had fallen off that pathway of love, they're laying at the bottom and they're looking up to the cliffs of love. And Jesus said, remember when you used to walk up there? Remember how good it was? That's what I want you to remember. Remember the time that we sweet fellowship. I want you to remember that. As we're laying on our backs looking up at the cliff of love, he says, I want you to remember, first of all. And then he said, I want you to repent. Remember, and by the remembering that should motivate us to be, want to be back up there on that pathway again, on that cliff of love. I want you to repent, turn from your sin, back to God. So you've abandoned that love, move back to that love is what he's saying. So remember and repent. And then he says, I want you to do the works. I want you to return to do the works you did at first. Remember from where you've fallen from. Don't ever forget repent, desire to be back up there loving Jesus like you did before and then return and do those things you used to do at the beginning when you truly did love Jesus and you remembered it the idea that Jesus said here if not here comes a warning if not it's a conditional phrase if not I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent 
The idea of Christ coming in chapters 2 and 3, he comes, it's mentioned five times, and three of those times he's coming for chastisement. He's coming for judgment upon his church. Two times he's coming saying that I'm going to come take my own. So two times are positive, two times are less than positive, negative. So the idea here is if you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. He didn't say I'm going to come and take away your salvation. That's not what he's saying. Remember the lampstand is the church. It lights the darkness. I'm going to come and remove the church from Ephesus. It's no longer going to be here. It's no longer going to have an impact in the community of Ephesus. It will no longer be a light in the darkness of Ephesus. Have you ever thought, if Medical Aid Community Church were to close its doors today, stop holding worship services, stop discipling people, stop reaching out to our community, if Medical Lake Community Church, if Jesus said, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand, Medical Lake Community Church, today, have you ever asked yourself, would anyone other than those people who attend here, would anyone weep because we no longer exist? Would anyone even notice that we closed the doors? Are we that lampstand that lights the community? That shows the way to God. That lives out holiness in our life. Are we that lampstand? Would anyone even notice if we cease to exist? We read in history that up until the 11th century, we read records of pastors being in Ephesus. Now, we don't know. We don't know whether the church was just going through duty up to that 11th century. In other words, whether it was just people meeting together, but they had been removed as a lampstand. We don't know. But we know by 1308, when the Turks came in and conquered what is modern-day modern day Turkey, uh, uh, Asia Minor, where the church in Ephesus was, by 1308, the Turks came in and the city surrendered to them. And what exists today in the city of Ephesus, that sprawling imperial city of Ephesus, where the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, what's remaining in that city today is a little railway station, a hotel, and a few poor dwelling places. That's it. There's no church. Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do. So apparently, they didn't repent. He removed that lampstand. It doesn't exist anymore. Look at verse number 6. I like the way Jesus does this. He starts in verses 1 through 3 with a praise. You're doing it great. Way to go. Check off on your list. Excellent. And then he goes from 4 to 5, and there's a rebuke in there. There's a time that says, now listen, you need to wake up a little bit. Things are slipping. Then, 6 and 7, he moves back to a quasi-praise mode, where he says, yet this you have. In other words, this you're doing good at. Verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. So we hear in the first instance in the New Testament we have that Jesus uses the term, uses it says himself, I hate. Now, if you're like me, when I read that, if Jesus hates it, I better hate it too. So I got to figure out what he's hating here. Because if he's so clearly the first time in the New Testament says, I hate this, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. I hate their behavior. I hate what they're doing. Then I better figure out what they're doing, and I better not do that, because I want to hate what Jesus hates. 
He hates their behavior, their works that they're doing here. Then the Nicolaitans appear to be a minority group that's trying to, to get a hearing in the church in Ephesus. They're not overwhelming the church. They're a smaller group, a minority group. The problem, they were also in the church of Pergamon, and we're going to read about that later in two weeks. There's a problem there. But the question we have today is, who are the Nicolaitans? Who are they? What did, what did they believe? What, did, what kind of works did they do? Because I don't want to do them if Jesus hates them. Well, the word itself, perhaps we get an idea if we look at the word itself. The word Nicolaitans comes from two Greek words, meaning he conquers and the people. So you could say, he conquers the people. Or the name could also mean the idea of rule over the people or rule over the laity. That's what the word could actually mean too. And many see in this a reference to the idea of the separation of professional clergy from the laity. Where you have the preacher, and then you have just you peons out there, the congregation. That's the idea. Separation of the professional clergy from just you average, everyday Christians out there, the laity. And that's what the Reformation stood up to fight against. Said, no, we believe in the priesthood of every believer. Every person is important. Whether you're standing in front of this pulpit, whether you're teaching God time, whether you're in the nursery, every person exercising their spiritual gift is important. The priesthood of the believers. So perhaps that's what this group is teaching, that you have these professional people, and then you have just an average laity. So, could be, rule over the people. Also in chapter 2, verse 14 of the church of Pergamon, there's an association with their works, their teaching to that of Balaam. Balaam was an Old Testament character that threw a stumbling block in the way of Israel. What he did then is he taught them that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, which was then a form of idolatry. They were no longer serving the one true God, but they were serving a false God, idolatry. And he also then brought a bunch of women in for the men and said, hey, come on, let's have a little party. And he taught them sexual immorality. So he taught them idolatry and sexual immorality. Now, if we go back and read the Old Testament statement, many people died because of this problem of Balaam. It was a horrible situation. So perhaps then this idea of the teaching of Balaam was, Balaam was also incorporated who these people were. Idolatry and sexual immorality. Clement of Alexandria, who was a third century uh, church father, said this about these people. He said, They abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. That could be who these people were. Their teaching then perverted grace and replaced liberty with license. Hey, don't worry about it. Go out and enjoy this temple prostitute. Go out and enjoy this sexual immorality. It's okay. They encouraged it. So most likely this group practiced spiritual fornication and physical fornication. And it fits a little bit the idea of these people in Ephesus. Some had left their first love, had abandoned that love. The Nicolaitans, they did not occupy God in their first place. And their lives were bent towards physical hedonism. It was allowed, it was even encouraged among their midst. Jesus said, I hate that kind of work. I hate that kind of work. I want God to be first in your life, and I want your bodies to be pure, living holy, sanctified lives, not sexual immorality. I hate them. You hate them too. That's good, Ephesus. Look at verse number 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this first phrase here, he who has an ear, this occurs at the end of each one of the church segments of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis. At the end of each one of the seven messages, this phrase appears. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At the end of one, each message, listen up. Listen to what the Spirit's saying to you. That phrase also appears in Revelation chapter 13, verse 9. It's a little bit different. It says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. There's no mention of the Spirit and there's no mention of the church. Now, we, we need not read too much into that Revelation 13, 9. But the idea here is that the Spirit is speaking to the churches. The Spirit is speaking to medical aid community church today. He who has an ear to hear. To have an, to have an ear means more than just having... This physical organ on the side of our heads. Now, as far as I can see, and some of your ears are covered by hair, as far as I can see, every one of us in here today have two ears. Now, maybe one of yours may be a little bit, maybe you had an accident, it may be scarred, I have a scar on this ear, or maybe part of it's missing because you got in a fight, but at least every one of you in here, I think, have two ears. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the idea, okay, you who have two ears are going to hear. Well, no. Because we know, ladies, you know your husband has... Did they say anything to you? Well, your parents are laughing because you've been there before. Just because we have two physical organs that are supposed to be able to hear, we don't always hear. So it's not just talking about the two physical organs on the side of our head to hear. It means obedience. It means obedience. That's what the word means. To have an ear means obedience. There was a missionary who was active in translating the Bible into the native language, kind of like Wycliffe Bible translators. And he was living among the local population. He was doing really well with his translation, but he was having a hard time coming up with a word that meant obedience. The people didn't really have one word in their language that talked about obedience. They didn't have anything. So one day he was outside watching one of his friends who was a native there in the village work with his dog. The man would give a dog command, sit, the dog would sit, the man, the man said, roll over, the dog would roll over, fetch, the dog would go fetch. And the missionary was just so impressed with the, the obedience of this dog. Whatever the master commanded it, the dog would do it. He was absolutely impressed with this. And so the, the missionary said to the, to the native guy, man, I'm really impressed with your dog. I mean, whatever you tell him to do, he does it. And the native replied, yes, my dog is all ear. And it dawned on the missionary. That's the word I'm looking for. He's all ear. He's obedient to what I tell him to do. He listens to me. He's all ear. And the, and the missionary went back, wrote it down, finished up his translation. He's all ear. Text tells us what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that can infer that the Spirit and the exalted Christ are equal. They are. But in this passage, you can refer to that they're equal, or it can have the same, uh, that they have the same message, or that Christ speaks to the churches through his Holy Spirit. It could be all of the above, that Christ and the Holy Spirit, they are equal, or it could be that the Spirit is speaking from the exalted Christ to his churches. Each of the seven messages concludes with a promise. And the promise is, to the one who conquers, or some translations say, overcome. There's a promise to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. And if you're like me, you want to say, okay, great. I want to be an overcomer then. 
I want to conquer. I want to receive that promise that we have right here. Okay, how can I be a conqueror? How can I be an overcomer? Good news. Every true believer in Jesus Christ, listen to me, every true believer in Jesus Christ is a overcomer. He's an overcomer. He is a conqueror. You say, how can that possibly be? I have failed Jesus before, and I know I'm a believer, but I failed him. You are an overcomer. You're a conqueror. How can I say that? First John. John says it. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer. You are a conqueror. He's talking to you this morning. It goes on, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Who conquers the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Every true believer is a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And the reason is because Jesus conquered. We are in Him. We read on down here in verse number 7 that the one who overcomes, the one who conquers... That I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the tree of life is mentioned four times in the Revelation. Now, you remember where else we hear that phrase, the tree of life? Dust off your memory a little bit. Go back in the Bible several centuries, millennia, as a matter of fact. Where then do we hear that phrase, tree of life? In the garden, right? And you remember the story, God creates man, Adam and Eve, and then he places them in the garden, and he says, you can eat of all the trees of the garden, but this one that's in the center of the garden, you're not allowed to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we know the story, Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then God says, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever in this state, we are going to remove them from the garden. So he does that. He removes them from the garden. So the first time that we see this tree of life is in the paradise of God in Genesis. It's that place where man had intimate, close fellowship, who walked in the cool of the day with his creator. The paradise of God. And it truly was a paradise because there was what? No sin. And the reward that Jesus says to the overcomer, to the one who's a true believer is, the reward for a conqueror is to eat of the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. Now some Jewish writers think that this, this, this tree of life teaching is talking about the restoration of God's original intention for humankind that was frustrated by sin. Or some say it's just a metaphor, the tree of life is a metaphor for salvation. Well, they're both right, actually. It is a metaphor for salvation, but the, the deepest meaning is that it is the restoration. It is a restoration of what God originally intended for mankind in the garden. And he who overcomes, he who is the conqueror, will eat from this tree. You and me, if we believe in Jesus. We will be restored back to that place that God wanted us, intentionally humankind, in the garden of fellowship with God. What an exciting thing. This phrase, paradise of God, paradise of God, uh, it's used referring to the Garden of Eden, but also in the New Testament we see this word used at least two times. The first time this idea of paradise of God is used, it's talking about the place of the righteous dead. You remember the thief on the cross? Remember the story of the thief on the cross? The, thief, the one thief was railing against Jesus saying, oh, you know, come on, if you're the Son of God, get off this cross and get me off this thing too. And the other one says, hey, wait a second, we're guilty for what we did. We were wrong. 
And then he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So the thief on the cross acknowledged his guilt, his sin, acknowledged who Jesus Christ was. He was a king coming into his kingdom, put faith in Jesus. He was saved. And Jesus responds to him in Luke chapter 23. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So the idea of paradise of God now is the place of the righteous dead. And Paul tells us that it's now in the heavenly realm. It's in the heavenly realm. He tells us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. In verse 3, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So it is the place of the righteous dead, and right now it's in the heavenly realm. But soon... Well, that's a reference to God's time. Soon it will no longer be in the heavenly realm. It will be somewhere else. For the new Jerusalem that descends out of heaven from God in Revelation chapter 21 verse 10. In the midst of this new Jerusalem. We're told in chapter 22 verse 2 is the tree of life. It comes back. Paradise lost. Paradise now the place of the righteous dead in the heavenly realm. But someday paradise is coming back down. The place where God will dwell. The new Jerusalem. And the tree of life is there again. That fellowship. That communion. Paradise is restored. Let's remember today. Let's remember together today. The key to this text is to remember. Let's remember today. Remember when you first got saved? Remember what it was like? Now, if you're not saved today, you don't have that memory. You don't know what it's like to be a believer. Today could be the day of your salvation. Today you could place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and this could be the day to remember. But if you are a believer in Jesus, you remember when you first got saved? Now, some of you say it's been decades ago. I don't I, I said a long time ago. I don't remember. Remember today. Dust off your mind. Remember when you first grasped what it took for your salvation? Remember when you first realized the shed blood of Jesus Christ on that cross, His broken body, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, what it took for you to be a believer? When you finally grasped that, your sinfulness, God's holiness, and you realize, thank you, Jesus, for what you did. Do you remember when you learned something new from the Bible? You just... You just open up the Bible, you were so excited about reading about Jesus, and then you found something about Jesus, and Jesus just got bigger in your eyes. Instead of now, now we say, oh, let's see. Oh, what am I going to read today? No, uh, no, nah, nah, I don't like that. That's talking about me. No, uh, no, nah, 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 I'm not going to read today. Remember when you used to open up the Bible to find something great about God, and Jesus just got bigger in your eyes? Remember the times when you abandoned yourself to worship? You were so abandoned to worship. In whatever form of worship that you want to raise your hands, not raise your hands, stand there with your head bowed, fall on your face on the ground. Whatever form of worship that you choose to use. Do you remember that time when you were so abandoned to worship that you didn't even realize the people around you? Because there was one person and one person you were thinking about, and that was Jesus Christ. Remember the times when you worked hard, you sacrificed personal comfort because you wanted others to experience that same love that you have for Jesus. Do you remember those times? 
William Gladstone, in announcing the death of Princess Alice to the House of Commons, told a touching story. The little daughter of the princess was seriously ill with diphtheria. The doctors told the princess not to kiss her little daughter and endanger her life by breathing the child's breath. Once when the child was struggling to breathe, the mother, forgetting herself entirely, took the little one into her arms to keep her from choking to death. And rasping and struggling for life, the little girl said, Mommy, kiss me. Without thinking of herself, the mother tenderly kissed her daughter. And you guessed it. She got diphtheria. And she died several days later. You see, real love forgets self. Real love knows no danger. Real love doesn't count the cost. Do you remember what it was like this morning? Let's pray together. Father, we are busy people. We have so many things going on in our lives. I pray this morning that you would cause us to stop and to refocus on one important thing, the most important thing, and that is our love for Jesus Christ. We want our candle, our lampstand to burn bright. We don't want our lampstand removed. We want to pass that on to our children, our children's children, this love. We love you because you first loved us. We want to pass that on. So I pray this morning, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to those who have never accepted Jesus as their Savior. They've never been saved. They don't know what it's like to remember that first day. I pray that they would get saved this morning, Father. And for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, I pray that today would be a day of commitment that we will remember what he did for us. And our love for him.